you have your copy of scripture, we're in the Old Testament book of Haggai. Haggai chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 15 this morning. Haggai is between Zephaniah and Zechariah. Between Zephaniah and Zechariah, it's a short little book, two chapters long. We will be here for four weeks, and um, we'll see what we can learn from the book of Haggai. Some people pronounce it Haggai, because that's easier. Like, Haggai? But anyway. Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. In the second year, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time of you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house and I may take pleasure in it. And I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you bought it, brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth is withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on that or on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. And then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnants of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. May God bless the reading of his word. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. It's faithful and true. It penetrates our hearts and lives. And I pray this morning, as your word is proclaimed and preached, that it not be my words that we hear, but it be your word from your Bible that you wrote down to be applied to our life. And Lord, I pray that we hear the message that your call to each and every one of us is to be concerned with God's house first. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
This morning I want to talk to you about priorities. You see, every single day we go through our day and we have priorities. We will use our time in that day to be involved in and do what we feel is essential. In fact, the average person in America lives between 70 and 80 years and many of those days are filled with doing what we want to do and often what we want to do is please ourselves. So even if we think about some of our days, maybe we go to work or we go to school, perhaps sometimes we go shopping or we go to church or we spend some time on leisure activities or whatever it might be. However, once we spend our day, it's done. It's over with. We never get to go back in time. We never get that day back. We can't exchange it even if we wanted to. And so if we're going to live wisely as the scripture tells us to do and encourages us to do, then our lives have to be focused on what matters most in light of eternity. And we can't just waste every moment of our day. Now, do you know why it's hard for people to live wisely? It's because the choice is not between the bad and the good. Oftentimes, the choices that we are faced with is between what is good and what is best. Now, this little book of Haggai is the second shortest in the Old Testament. But it's powerful because the description that we have is that people need to put God's house first. Now, I want you to understand this book is written to people who would say that God's house must be first. That's what they would say. They're much like us. If we asked them if God's house is to be first, they would say, yes, God's house is to be first. They believe that, and many of us believe that as well. However, their belief was not being put into practice because they had allowed themselves to drift into a way of living where their intellectual belief that God was sovereign over all did not translate into the way they were living. And so you had a people that would give lip service to the priority of God, but they lived entirely different. And so God sends his prophet to help his people get their priorities straight and in line with what they should be. Now, before we get into the meat of the message, let me give you some historical information. The setting is from Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. It's 536 B.C. There's a remnant of roughly 50,000 Jews who had returned from Babylon to Judah under the decree of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Upon their return, they quickly rebuilt the altar and they began offering sacrifices. And two years after their arrival, they had laid the foundation to rebuild the temple. And now the Samaritans made an offer to help rebuild the, the temple, but the Jews refused the Samaritans' offer to help and so the Samaritans threatened the workers and sent men to Persia to lobby against the Jews, which brought their work on the temple to a halt. Now 14 years have passed. People are all caught up in the routine of life. You know, building houses, raising families, growing food. In fact, they had become accustomed to life 
without the temple, even their leaders, Zerubbabel, who was the governor, and Joshua, who was the high priest, were used to the status quo. So that's the scene. And God raises up this prophet, Haggai. And two months later, he's proclaiming God's message to his people. Now Haggai contains four precisely dated messages from the Lord. The first, which is what we will look at today, is from chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. It was on the first day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius, which is August 29, 520 B.C. The second message is from chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, and it came on the 21st of the seventh month, which is October 17th. The third message is from uh, two, chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, and the fourth, chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. They came on the same day, the 24th of the ninth month, which is December 18th. So I tried to summarize this chapter in one sentence. And this is what I came up with. We must refuse to put our desires above God's house. We must refuse to put our desires above God's house. Now, some of you are thinking, well, we're done. Let's go. Not so fast. The minor prophet's commentary puts it like this. In short, Haggai is saying, give God the supreme place in your life. And Jesus said to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And that is why I titled this first message, Build God's House First. So first, let's see something that every single one of us, I believe, struggle with. And that's this, putting self first. We are prone to wander, neglecting God's house. Putting self first, we're prone to wander, neglecting God's house. Good intentions gets us nowhere. Listen, we, we can talk about all of the things that we intended to do, but they amount to nothing. And the reason why they tend to be intentions is that we default to putting self first that's our default mode let me demonstrate what this looks like we go through our lives we do not give any thought to how we're living our lives and whether we are living in a way that's pleasing to god and we go through life like like uh, like we just naturally live for self and our own agenda now every person that has trust in christ as their savior knows that we're not to live for self or the things of this world. We know that the things of this world will never truly satisfy us, even though they promise to. We know that true happiness is only found in God. And yet, what we do is we often find ourselves doing the things that we shouldn't be doing, like pleasing ourself and seeking the things of the world. We find ourselves drifting from God and towards loving the world. And if we do nothing about it, then we're not living for Christ. And sure, we may have good intentions, but that gets us nowhere. And that's the point. When we put ourselves first, we are prone to wander. And I want to share with you four things about those who wander in hopes that we as a church will fight against wandering. First, those who wander and neglect God's house are often committed believers. Those who wander and neglect God's house are often committed believers. You say, well, that makes absolutely no sense. It makes perfect sense when we read this passage of Scripture. 
We must understand something about the people to whom Haggai is writing. They had committed to leave their established way of life in Babylon and make this dangerous journey to the land of promise. They had homes in Babylon. They had jobs in Babylon. And many of them were born and raised there. And here's the thing. They knew that God's purpose for his people was to be in the promised land. And so by faith, they respond to the call to go. And they were committed to reestablishing. And, and that had faced, uh, they had faced, uh, uh, this area had faced a devastation from war. And what, what causes you to want to go through this? Well, I believe in their case, it was because they were committed to God. They were committed to the promise that they were supposed to dwell in the promised land. And so why by faith, why would they respond and go? Well, by faith, committed believers. They returned to the promised land. They made an attempt to rebuild the temple. But then hardship settles in and they stop. So then what happens? Well, they lose interest because they stopped. They lose their vision. They drift to the point that God's house is no longer a priority. They probably thought much like many of us do today. Well, God's house is nice. But it's not really necessary. It's just an extracurricular activity. It's not essential. Now, you, some of us say, well, I would never say such a thing. Well, we don't have to. We live it. We'd say, well, I wouldn't say that, but, but we live it in our life. And we would be amiss if we did not see ourselves in this picture. If you know Christ as your Savior, there was a time when you made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. And as the song says, you decided to follow Jesus. And in the beginning, you were hungry and you loved spiritual things and you craved knowledge and you read your Bible, maybe even every single day. You got involved in things. You served the local church. But at some point, you faced some difficulties or you faced some hardships and maybe it was a clash with another Christian or maybe it was uh, uh, something with someone's uh, personality that opposes yours and perhaps you had this grand vision but you became disappointed with the results of your vision or perhaps you faced personal trials and hardships and life moved on and didn't slow down has a way of doing that. And you have a career and you have a family. There are bills to pay. There are all kinds of demands on your time. And the church and the Lord's work slowly fades into the background of your life. Oh sure, you may attend as often as you can, but it's just a slice of your life now. It's not the center of your life. And how do we respond? Well, we tell ourselves we don't have the time for God's house. We're too busy now. Someone with less responsibilities needs to step up and get involved. Do you see the problem? You have slowly drifted into putting your house above God's house. And when the Holy Spirit brings conviction into your life, you find some way to convince yourself and explain why things are the way they are. As you're wandering far 
from God's house. Next, those who wander and neglect God's house have continual excuses. Those who wander and neglect God's house have continual excuses. Have you ever caught a child doing something that they should not be doing? What do they do? They give you an excuse as to why they're doing what they're doing, right? And we do the same thing. Look at verse 2. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So if we were to ask them why the temple was not built, they would have responded with something like, well, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not against the temple. I mean, I want to rebuild the temple and all, but, but the timing's just not right to rebuild the temple. The, the economy's not really doing the greatest right now, and people are hard up for cash, and I'm doing all I can to provide for my family, but I, I know times will eventually get better, and then we will rebuild the temple. You can hear the excuses for not doing what they should have been doing. Again, we have to reflect on ourselves. How often do we make excuses for our disobedience of neglecting God's house? How often do we refuse to put God first with our time and money that he has entrusted to us? And we make excuses as to why we're not doing it. We justify it in our own minds. I mean, we'll even try to use the Bible to give support to our excuses. And we'll say things like, well, the Bible says that if we don't provide for our own family, we are worse than an unbeliever. And we've denied the faith. I'm just trying to obey God's word. One day things will slow down. One day I'll have my kids through college. One day I'll have my bills paid. One day I'll be able to give more to the Lord's work. But one day never comes. Or we will say things like this. It's, it's a hectic time in my life or in my family's life. The kids have me running all over the place. And they demand our attention. And all of our free time is filled up with meeting their needs. But one day we'll get through this phase. We'll get involved one day. But one day never comes. Because we're wandering from God's house. Those who wander and neglect God's house, often can't see God's discipline. Look at verses 5 and 6. God says, consider your ways. They're having all kinds of problems. They would sow seed, but there'd be a drought. They would harvest little. And so that meant the, the next year they would have even less seed to sow to make up for the previous lousy year. Have you ever tried to get ahead in life and felt like you couldn't? No matter how hard you worked, you weren't getting ahead? That's what they're going through. It's like they could not keep up with the inflation. Look at verse 6. It's like putting their money in a bag with holes. They would come to the end of the month and they would have nothing left. And so therefore, they would have nothing to give towards the temple building fund. 
And surely God would understand that they were in, in the midst of a difficult time. And therefore they couldn't give. What they did not realize was that yes. God knew about their difficult circumstances. And that he fully understood them. Because God is the one that caused them. And the harder they worked, the more they fell. But they never bothered to stop and think that God was trying to get their attention and tell them something. It was not until Haggai came on the scene and let them know that it was God who controlled the rain. God who controlled the harvest. And that God was withholding his blessing because their priorities were backwards. But God's put God's house first. And he will bless. And some might say, well, what is, how does that apply to us? And I would respond with Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. And when we wander into ne neglecting God's house and we seek our own comfort first, we've lost all spiritual control. And we fail to see God's discipline in our lives. And they worked for food that spoils and rots neglecting spiritual food that endures for all eternity they forgot if they walked in a way that was pleasing to the lord he would give them everything that they needed they they needed to stop walking down the path that they were going down and to consider that they were working against god who merely needs to take a breath and blow every earning they have away this is done so they would consider their priorities so they would put him first I wonder how often our priorities are mixed up when we think that we are fine, we fail to give to God's house, and we wonder why we struggle. Fourthly, those who wander and neglect God's house come to never get what they are seeking. These people had some success, at least some of them did, because it says that they lived in fine paneled houses. But the point of verse 6 and, and verses 9 through 11 is that even when you work hard and you get what you're working for, it's never going to truly satisfy you. King Solomon, he had all the money, all the fame, all the knowledge, pleasure. He had everything a man could ever dream of having. And what he say? Vanity of vanities. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 2. It's like the song from the Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction. Because you are searching for things that will never satisfy. What good is it to work your tail off your entire life just to retire and enjoy the good things in life if a month after you retire, you die. What good is it? That's just like the scripture says, you've just put all of your money into a bag with holes. What good is it to build up bigger barns to hold all of your increased wealth if God says to you, fool, this night, I will require your soul from you. And how and, and how have you prepared? Luke 2, 20. 
History is riddled with people who have devoted themselves their entire life to climbing the corporate ladder, pursuing the riches of this world, only to find out too late that they were heading down the wrong path. And sadly, some of these people have been Christians. And the truth is, only God can satisfy your soul. Jesus promised that when we put God's kingdom first, he gives us all the material things we need. However, that means continual battle against having your priorities out of whack. We're constantly battling it. And this is why we must put God's house first even above self. We must put God's house first, even above self. As we've already noted, this is a difficult thing for us to do. Now I know for some of you, you may be thinking, what do you mean by this whole put God's house first? Are you talking about the church building? What are you talking about? Well, in our text, when it speaks of God's house, it's a reference to the temple that is in Jerusalem, which was the center for worshiping God. Now we know that God is indeed everywhere. He's omnipresent. But specifically in the Old Testament, the temple was God's special dwelling place. It was in the temple where God revealed his glory. The sacrifices that were offered were offered in the temple, pointing ahead to the coming of God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would eventually offer himself as the complete and final sacrifice for our sins. And so for them to allow the temple to lay in ruins was to reject the worship of God. It means that their priorities were not right. And when we take anything and we elevate it above our worship of God, it is idolatry. And I mean anything. It doesn't matter what it is. The moment you elevate that above your worship of God, it has become an idol in your life. Which in every case, including their case, idolatry is putting the creation above the creator. Now, in today's time, the temple is not about a physical building, even though we tend to confuse it as such. But the temple is God's people, both as individuals, so individually and corporately. So you individually, temple, and corporately as a church, temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, make this clear. God dwells in our hearts individually, and together we're being built into the temple or the house of God, Ephesians chapter 2 and 1 Peter chapter 2. So when we say put God's house first, what is being said is that Your number one aim in life is to make your body as a fit dwelling place for the Holy Spirit and that your entire life is devoted to that and to seeing others built up in Christ so that their entire life is an appropriate dwelling place for God. It means that your primary goal is to know Christ by faith and to do all that you can to help other people also know Christ by faith. Now here's the thing. In order to do this, in order to put God's house first above self, it requires intentional and continual effort on our part. By our very nature, 
We put ourselves first. We put the material above the spiritual. The world is constantly pulling us towards its desire and its appeals. And, and they look so good, but if we want to go God's way, it's going to be a fight every step of the way. It's interesting that many prophets of the Old Testament preach all their lives to stubborn, disobedient people. But here Haggai preaches, and the people are obedient. This all started with the leaders Zerubbabel and Joshua. It would have been just as easy for them to ignore Haggai's message and to preserve how the community saw them. Think about this. Haggai was, was just a young prophet who no one has heard of. He comes along and says, thus says the Lord of hosts. But they listened and obeyed. It's interesting as we study this book, we will find out how Haggai claims to speak the word of the Lord more than any other prophet in all scripture. 25 times in 38 verses. And it refers to God as the Lord of hosts 14 times. Haggai is making it very clear that God is the Lord of all. That he is bringing his message. And so they need to listen to what he says. And in this instance, the people actually listen and obey. So what is the application that we, you and I find here? Well, for one, that God's word, the Bible, is his authoritative word. And we must submit to it. And so when we're reading and studying the scripture... When you're spending time reading God's word and you come across something that confronts your way of life, you can either resist that by making excuses or you can obey it. However, we must understand that to obey just one time is not enough, that we need to very intentionally and continually obey God's word if we are ever going to keep our priorities in order. I love what R.C. Sproul once said when talking about the will of God. He, he said, we're so concerned with the secret will of God. There's a reason it's a secret when we won't even obey the revealed will of God. Right? Here's his revealed will, and we can't even obey it, but we want to know what his secret will is. Why? We, we should be obeying the revealed will. Let the secret will of God take care of itself. That's why it's a secret. Just obey what you know to obey. So the question is, how, how do we accomplish this? How do we put our priorities in order? How do we put God's house first? Well, to put God's house above self requires consistent self-evaluation in the fear of God. Consistent self-evaluation in the fear of God. In verse 5 and 7, the Lord tells the people, consider your ways. What does that mean? Consider your ways. What it means, they need to stop and think what they're doing and evaluate their life in the light of God's word and fear of him. So if we're going to do a self-evaluation in view of God's word, what, what should we be asking? If you were going to do a self-evaluation, you're like, I'm going to evaluate myself in light of God's word. What should you ask yourself? Have you ever thought about that? What should I be asking myself? Well, let me give you some suggestions. Because I know you really want them. Number one, how am I spending my time? That's a good self-evaluation. How am I spending my time? 
And so we see that these people had all kinds of time for themselves to do and focus on what they wanted, but they did not have time for God. Often when talking to people about why they may not come to church or why they may not get out of bed for Sunday school or why they're struggling to read their Bible, I hear this excuse. Well, pastor, I don't have time. Well, rearrange your schedule. Make time. How are you spending your time? Number two, how am I spending my money, which is not mine in the first place, it's God's. So how am I spending my time? How am I spending my money, which really isn't mine, it's God's. Oh boy, here goes the pastor talking about money again. So we know from this passage what these people claimed that they need to get their own house built first and then they would work on God's house. Well, that's backwards, my friends. In fact, when we get right down to it, we would know that God says to give him the first fruits, not the leftovers. His portion comes off the top. It's not, well, let me go have all my fun, spend all my money, and that, well, if I have anything left, I might give it to God. That's not the way it's supposed to work. You're supposed to give him first. We are to give him the best. We must understand that we are merely the managers of everything that he's given to us, and we're called to invest what he has given to us in a way that profits his kingdom, not our kingdom. And so how are you spending your money? Number three, what are my goals? Have you ever asked yourself, what are my goals? We should ask ourselves that question. What, what am I trying to get out of this life? If you get to live to a nice old age, what is it that you want to look back on and see that you've accomplished? Is it, well, I made a lot of money. I had a nice house. Is it things that really don't matter? Or is it things of God's kingdom? What are your goals? Number four, what is on my mind the most? Oh boy, that's a tough one. Do you ever ask yourself that question? What am I constantly thinking about? You see, when our mind wanders and you have your secret little thoughts, what occupies your mind? Do you have dreams of getting rich? If I just had a little bit more money, do you have dreams of being famous? Boy, I'm sick of pastoring this itty-bitty church. If only I had a church of 500. Boy, I'd get recognized then. I don't really have those thoughts. I'm just trying to give you an illustration. Perhaps your mind is filled with some hobby that you like or, or a leisure that you enjoy. Or do you think about the Lord? Do you think about, God, how do you want me to spend my life? What I'm asking you is, do your thoughts reveal that you are controlled by the Spirit of God or the lust of the flesh? Please hear me. There's nothing wrong with thoughts of having a good time. There's nothing wrong with thoughts of vacationing. I have thoughts of vacationing all the time. There's nothing wrong with those thoughts. But when those thoughts consume us, then we have a problem. If that's where our mind is always going, we have a problem. So what consumes your mind? Number five, 
Who are my heroes and role models? We need to ask ourselves, who is it that we admire most in our life? Is there someone that you would like to be like? And why do you want to be like them? Number six, who are my friends? Who is it that you like to spend time with? And what is the reasoning for why you want to spend time with them? Number seven, how do I spend my free time? So when you have time off or some free time, how do you spend that time? Do you watch TV? Do you live for sports? Do you hang out with friends? In other words, how does your free time not only affect, affect but reflect your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me tell you something that can be beneficial. Take some time, write down your goals, and ever so often reevaluate them. And see where you're at, because otherwise, you're going to drift off course. I recently read a book by Tim Challies called Do More Better. The book deals with being productive. And he gives these three critical insights. I'm going to share them with you real quick. The purpose of productivity is to glorify God. The whole purpose of you being productive in life, glorify God. Number two, the provision that you have to be more productive for God's glory are tools that God has given to you. For guys like me, most of these are digital tools because that is just where I'm at. But for some people, it could be paper. But the key is to have a task management tool, a calendar tool, and an information gathering tool. And so you use those to better glorify God in your life. Number three, to maintain productivity, you have to be consistent. I share that with you because I try to self-evaluate often. And the goal is that God would be glorified in it. And I would be on track putting God first in my life. Undergirding all of these questions and self-evaluation is the fear of God. Now, many people would say, fear of God? What do you mean? We're not supposed to fear God. That's only for the Old Testament. We're supposed to focus on God's love. Let me be clear as I can. The New Testament has plenty to say about fearing God. As believers, we don't fear his final judgment. But Peter says, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Basically, Peter says, if you call yourself a Christian, then conduct yourself in fear while you're on the earth, which is the profound feeling of reverence and respect to God. So here's the question. If we reverently obey God by putting his house first above ourself, then what's the result? And that's the last thing I want to share with you this morning. What is the result? Don't freak out. It has three subpoints. What's the result? Putting God's house above self pleases and glorifies him. His work gets accomplished and we get blessed. So I think sometimes the question is, what's the point of putting God's house first? Or some people might ask this question, how is this going to benefit me? Or is this going to benefit me at all? And personally, I think that's the wrong question that we should be asking. We, don't, we shouldn't ask that question. The question is, that how is putting God's house first going to benefit me? The question should be, how do I most glorify God in my life? And if that is through putting God, God's house first, then we do it. However, the side effect of that is this. There's a benefit to it. So here's some of the benefits. When we put God's house first above self, he is pleased and glorified. 
God's seeking what most glorifies Him. He's concerned with His glory, not our glory. He wants to see what glorifies Him in our lives, what pleases Him in our life. The problem that we are faced with when we fail to put God's house first is that we neither glorify, we're neither glorifying Him nor pleasing Him. In fact, we're displaying by our own life that His glory really doesn't matter much to us. Let me recommend a book to you if you would like to take the time to read it. It's deep, but it's an excellent book to wrestle with. It's called God's Passion for His Glory by John Piper. The beauty of this is you can go on his website and download it. Many of Piper's books are free if you want to read them digitally. So you go to desiringgod.org and at the top uh, you click on books and it will take you to a page of all the books and you find the one that you want to read and you click on it and then from there you can download it for free or you can purchase it. If you want help, you say, Pastor, I don't understand all that stuff. Let me know. I will help you out. Anyway, the book by Piper includes with it Jonathan Edwards' book, The End for Which God Created the World. Listen, the overall theme is that God created and called a people for himself, and the reason was for his glory. The aim of our entire life is to glorify God. That should be the aim of your whole life. That is why you're here. Some people say, well, what's my purpose on earth? Glorify God. Why am I here? Glorify God. What am I doing? You're, you're, here to, you're doing what you're doing to glorify God. Everything that you do is to be for the glory of God. You say, well, what if I'm watching TV? Well, you should be doing it for the glory of God. I love the story of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon smoked cigars. He had a guest speaker come in and talk about hey, you should never be smoking cigars and yada, 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 and, and going on and on about how you shouldn't smoke cigars. And Charles Spurgeon responded with, tonight I'm going to go home and I'm going to smoke a cigar to the glory of God. That was his response because that's how he lived his life. Everything that he did, he could reason, is this for God's glory or for my glory? The aim of your entire life is the glory of God. In everything you do. And if you cannot do it for his glory, then cut it out and don't do it. When we put God's house above self, his work gets done. I love verse 14 because we read that the Lord stirred their hearts. I love that. And what did they do? They came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. God stirs their hearts and they come and work. Yes, we have the responsibility of getting our priorities in order. However, let's notice that when we do that, when we get our priorities in order, it is because God has moved in your heart in the first place. It is because God has stirred your heart. It's not because you woke up one day and said, oh boy, I'm going to have my priorities in order. God stirs your heart. And you get your priorities in order. We must understand as followers of Christ, the primary interest of every single Christian, your primary interest, believer, is this, to advance God's kingdom. Why are you, why are you here if it's not about advancing God's kingdom? Do you think that, that the Lord saved you to come sit in a pew in church? And that's part of it. 
equipping of the saints equip you to go out and do what? Advance God's kingdom and give Him glory. That's the point. Thirdly, when we put God's house above self, He blesses us. Look at verse 13. We look at that, we have the people obeying and looking and doing what God wants them to do. And look how God responds with this. I am with you. What a great comfort to know. God is with us. What a great blessing. God is with us. Here's the thing, if God is with us and for us, then who can be against us? That's what the scripture teaches us in Romans 8.31. If God seems to be far off or at a distance from you, perhaps you have your priorities mixed up. When you put God first in his place, you experience an awareness of his presence. And let me just say, it's such a blessing to know the awareness of the presence of God in your life. Are you putting God's house first are you doing that there was once a time management expert who was speaking to a group of business students he pulled out a large wide mouth jar and he filled it with large rocks and when he could not put any more rocks in the jar he asked is this jar full the class responded yes he said really then he pulled out a bucket of gravel and he poured it in, shaking it down through the cracks. And then he asked again, is the jar full? The students were on to him by now. And so they said, no, good. He replied, he dumped in a bucket of sand. And again, he asked, is the jar full? No, they shouted again. He said, good. He poured in a pitcher of water until the water was full to the brim. And then he asked, what is the point of the illustration? One student bravely ventured, no matter how full your schedule, if you try harder, you can always fit more in. No, the speaker replied, that is not the point. The point is, if you don't put the big rocks in first, you'll never get them in at all. Our big rocks are God and his house. God and his house. If we don't put them into our life first, then they won't go in at all. There's a lot of people with good intentions, folks. You may be one of them. You may feel like I've preached this sermon right at you. You may have good intentions, but you're not putting God's house first. And listen, if his house doesn't come first, it won't come at all. Every once in a while, sprinkled here and there, it won't come at all. If we don't give to him now, we won't give at all. And at some point, we have to stop allowing everything else to crowd out God and his church. We must stop. Putting self-interest, self-promotion, self-things. We must stop putting self 
first while God's house lies in ruins and we do absolutely nothing about it. I would just simply ask you this morning, what comes first in your life? Are you willing to honestly examine your heart and life and make the needed changes? Because perhaps this morning, God has stirred your Will you make the changes that are needed? Here in a moment, our musicians are going to play a song. I'm going to be standing down front. Maybe this morning, you just need to confess, Pastor, I'm, I've not been putting God's house first, and it starts now. God has stirred my heart this morning. Maybe you can do that in your pew. You don't have to come down here and talk to me. You can, you can confess that in your pew. You can come up here and pray if you want to, if, if you feel like you need to respond in any way. Maybe for the first time, you actually heard something that clicked in your head about the gospel and how Christ has come to pay the price for us and you want to commit your life to Christ. If God has spoken to you, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to God's word this morning. So I'll be, I'll be down front if you feel like you need to respond this morning. Let's close a prayer.